Nightcaps of the Living Dead. We gonna Babadook? Hello, everyone. Hey, today we're gonna Baba what? Baba, Baba who? <laughs> we're gonna Baba Duke today. That's right. Tonight's episode is all about that Aussie psychological horror from 2014, where a grieving mother battles depression, her child, and manifests the Baba Duke, who turned from a very scary metaphor to a gay icon. You knew this, right? Yes. I'm glad that you Which do. We'll discuss. Yeah, so he became like a meme. Yeah. And an icon for the gay community. Apparently it came out of a mistake that Netflix That Netflix made. Netflix which okay. So yeah, I, I read um that it popped up with like, oh, if you like Priscilla Queen of the Desert and GBF and all this, you might like the Babadook. <laughs> And people just ran with it. And it's like I remember HBO Max or no, it was HBO or Netflix, something the, reg- ba- the regular HBO. Yeah, because yeah, Max, the Max. Yeah, something Max. back in the day was just like, oh, if you like Home Alone, you'll like The Leftovers, which I thought was fucking hilarious. <laughs> because Justin <laughs> Thoreau plays Kevin, who is deserted by a civilization of people. <laughs> he just gets up to hijinks, you know? I'm like, it's like they're kind of right with that algorithm, right? <laughs> Those algorithms. So, so whatever connected the Babadook... Um, as a person, but it's interesting because you watch the movie and maybe we'll get into this and mm-hmm. it does fit in a strange, weird way. The Babadook is a figure who wants to come out of the closet and all sorts of things. Like, well, right. I, I read so many different things about why he like turned from meme to fabulous gay icon but yeah we'll we'll get there we'll we'll, we'll get into, get we'll into, get into it, it. I, I have you, some thoughts as to why this happened i, I want I you to a, i'm a, i well we'll get into it we'll get into it. <laughs> keep going what are We're you getting drinking? ahead of ourselves what are you drinking tonight so i had started the night with an espresso martini thanks to you and jack oh. who i got in the mail yesterday and that I is what i'm espresso I'm martini kid because i live in prohibition era north carolina where i can't fucking go to the liquor store because it's COVID 19. so jennifer and jack had the kindness to send me a kid to make espresso martinis <laughs> as if i was at Oh, <laughs> and you executed it so beautifully. Like you made a beautiful drink and put the little coffee bean garnish on top of it. And it's like, yeah, I'm sure they can get delivery services like Drizzly or Cocktail Courier. I don't fucking know. But the thing is, we made that espresso vodka like special. <gasps> it is so it's good. So good. It's so good. It's so infused. Jack made me one right now and coffee. I'm enjoying it so much. It's so fucking good. So yeah, guys, ever in LA, go to Pump for, I don't care if you hate reality TV, go to Pump for that beautiful courtyard and the espresso martinis. They're so it's the delicious. Best. But yeah, you followed the, the instructions and you made it. And so Dear, dear listeners, this is the hilarious part of this. Before the podcast, we were discussing and uh, and texting. and like, oh, hey, meet, meet up with you at 8 and, you know, midnight your time or 11 your time. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> and, and you're like, oh, I have a dilemma. I'm like, oh, no, is your equipment not working? What's going on? Did you not watch the movie? And you're like, 
my martini shaker is my mic stand. And I was like, <laughs> and in my fashion, I'm thinking, oh, well, we're assholes. We should have sent you a martini shaker, an extra one. And then Jack was like, we should send him a mic stand. <laughs> I, I figured it out. I pre-made the martinis and then washed it and put my mic in it. So, yes. So, the martini that I'm having right now has been concocted by the same device that holds what I'm speaking through tonight. But you know if that mic smells like espresso, it wouldn't be the worst yeah. thing. Anyways, let's, let's, let's get sense. into the Babadook. Because I thought, honestly, I was thinking we should make our cocktails themed with our movies. But that... that creates a lot of effort and i don't want to drink shitty australian wine you know no, no. <laughs> so um let's talk about the first time we saw this movie yes so i think you saw it first i really thought i saw and it with you a, both a times, more fun but... first experience and then we saw it again yeah i saw it again i saw it with you but you, you had already seen it the first time. Yeah, which is and crazy. You want to tell your story I guess, because I really thought that you were there both times. So I guess you were there the second time. So I saw it with um, Blas and Mike and Annie and somebody else at the time. Um, maybe we went Sam? Oh, maybe. No. Anyways, we, we went to uh, the Vista in Los Feliz and William Friedkin. William Friedkin? <laughs> Friedkin? 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 I don't know how you. Friedkin. Friedkin. William Friedkin. 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 Um, he was there and Guillermo and I have a history with this amazing, amazing man. He directed The Exorcist, Bug, Killer Joe. He's just utterly amazing. If you've seen The Kid Stays in the Picture starring Bob Evans, that is William's vibe, but more charming. He has the turtleneck and the gold chain over it, whiskey in hand, telling you <laughs> stories from the 70s. Big aviator sunglasses. Yes, the aviator glasses. <laughs> He's just like, hey, kid, hey, let's talk about movies for four hours. I'm like, you could be you could be on this podcast. He could run this podcast. Exactly. He's, he's amazing. I know. I love him so much. Um, and you and I, we we went to some release at The Exorcist. Um, it was probably mm-hmm. some seventy millimeter print or some some special viewing at the ArcLight, and he was there and talking to audience members for hours afterwards. He was he's just such a fun guy. <laughs> he just is really cool. Anyways, the whole reason why I bring this up because um, the Babadook was written and directed by Jennifer Kent. This is her feature film debut. Pretty fucking impressive. He, whenever he saw it, he has nothing to do with the movie as far as I'm concerned. Am I wrong? No, yes. He just okay. saw it. <laughs> he just saw it. And he said it is the most terrifying movie he's ever seen. This motherfucker directed The Exorcist. So he's like, "I shame on you, distributor, IFC. Shame on you guys. I'm going to host my own private screenings of this. And I just thought that was, that is somebody that loves movies, you know? Like that's what, think, talk about yeah. being an ally and an impassioned filmmaker. I mean, that's that's just great. So he just decided to promote the movie just because. Just because he, doing he, he believed in all it. over LA. He believed in he this filmmaker. So I, think, I believe you went to the first one that he did. Yeah, I went to like the first round. Silver Lake. Yeah, right? and he introduced it. And he was really excited about it. I'm like, okay, you're selling this pretty hard, man. I, I hope that it holds up. And while a lot of people, um, I think it's overhyped of how scary it is, it is, again, a psychological horror. So whatever freaks you out along the lines of grieving, child abuse, 
um, mm-hmm. depression, anxiety, whatever speaks to you in your soul that you're sensitive about or fearful of, I feel like that movie could really um, heighten that emotion. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I think that's where he was coming from when he was kind of explaining the impact. So you, when you hear the director of The Exorcist telling you this is the scariest movie I've ever seen, yeah, you're like, oh, I'm gonna buckle you're up, like, man! Holy motherfucker! <laughs> <laughs> what uh, is happening? Yeah, watch this. Um, so I think I mean you just pointed out the three big themes of this movie. Mm-hmm. It is a combination of grief, depression, and abuse. Mm-hmm. And all intertwined in a very complex way. Right. Um, and also sexual repression. Oh. So, yes. I'm yeah, going to add repression yeah. into it. Okay. Because she's, she's neglected herself in the, in the, since, you know, since the husband died. Right. Well, okay. She also has no... So there's a sexual repression element that I noticed. That yeah. No, I, I agree with that as well. I, yeah, I got that the second time that I've, or yeah, the third time I viewed this, like the, the most recent, the 2020s <laughs> revision. 2020s revision. Um, before we get into the actual sequential order, I'm going to say Jennifer Kent, I am really impressed with her. I don't know a whole lot about her. Um, I just feel like she's a fucking badass. And I was reading about her bio or reading her bio. And apparently she got burnt out with film school. She wrote Lars von Trier. And she was just like, film school's not teaching me shit. I studied acting. I studied directing. I want to work on a set and see what I'm into. And she was just kind of like a hands-on girl. And he said, okay, sure. Come up to Dogville. You know, I'm just shooting this major thing with Nicole Kidman. So come on up and and learn and she said okay and so apparently she just was she hit the ground running she was just a very observational do-it-yourself filmmaker which i really respect that is awesome right that is a, what a set what a set to walk <laughs> I, yeah, I know oh my god he's like he's like oh little girl you're you ready for this okay come on up and she she got it man so she like flew over to denmark and, well, and i believe dogville was shot in everything well okay. i thought it was Lars, no, Lars von Trier does not leave Europe. Really? He can't fly. He has a deathly fear of flying. He's never been to the United States. <gasps> Isn't that crazy? Wow. I he made a that. movie about Washington State with Bjork, and he's never been to Washington State. <laughs> <gasps> well. So it's all his imagination. It's what he thinks America is. He can't, he can't fly there. Huh. It's very interesting. He has a deathly fear of flying, and he will go any, he only goes places by train. I guess he could take a cruise, Ugh. which maybe he has attempted. Can but you he imagine fly. Lars on a cruise? <laughs> <laughs> Just looking at the shrimp buffet and these like singers he's like, like dancing around him with America. jazz hands. <laughs> oh my God, Jesus, I'm with him. Like, stay there, shoot, pretend Washington's in Denmark. I'm okay. Um, so I just want to fast forward to the opening scene. The opening scene has the enticing incident. You see mm-hmm. Essie Davis beautiful very talented australian actress and this wonderful dream sequence um reenacting the same moment that her husband was killed in a car crash en route Mm -hmm. to having her child born and so the first time i saw this and i want to know your feelings about this the first time i saw this and when i saw this with you the second time i really thought this kid was a fucking nightmare i 
hated him. He gave me so much anxiety. I'm like, he is a demon child. He is Damien 666. I felt so tense around him or whenever he was on screen. I just, oh, I thought that kid acted the shit out of these scenes. He was very natural. And whenever he was screaming, his face was contorted like a demon. I mean, where they found this kid, I don't know. They, he he was brilliant. But um, I I really judged that kid harshly the first time I saw this. And I have not gotten motherly <laughs> in my older years at all. I haven't. But this time around, I'm like, man, he's just being a kid. You're, you're stuck in your bullshit. Like I was on the kid's side this time around. And, and I know that the movie goes from um, her perspective halfway through to gain that, mm-hmm. that audience loyalty um, to see like, okay, he's a terror. He's fucking exhausting. Like, mom, 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 look at my magic trick. Oh, I can't sleep. And therefore you can't either. What? Like, my life is your life all the time. Oh. Just so, so much. Um, but this time around, I'm like, okay, I get it. You know, the, the first half. And then I saw how it was from his perspective, the second half. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And oh they my switch. God. They switch. I, I didn't, oh. That's another thing I noticed this time. It switches the power struggle. Not the power struggle, but the, the focus of the movie or the point of view switches between the two of them. A mm-hmm. couple. I think it actually switches back and forth maybe once or twice. Oh, really? So I think it, it goes from being her perspective so I, to being his perspective, so it's like her perspective, and then this is what we see him as the demon child, mm-hmm. because this is what she's experiencing. It's very psychological. Mm-hmm. But then it switches to his perspective, where she's the demon mother, yeah, the abusive mother, and he's really terrified of her, but doesn't know what to do. And then it switches back to her. So it does a couple of back and forth. It's timed with her episodes of of lucidity versus episodes of. I don't know if we can call it schizophrenia or whatever she's I just I just feel like it's deep grief and deep depression. Whenever I first saw this movie for the first time, I'm like, this is all about child abuse. And the second time yep. coming into this, because this was only in 2014, like not a lot of time has passed since then, but we're in a different world. And I'm like, oh, nope, this is about depression, grief, and anxiety. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's, it's essentially... Well, here's okay. Do you want me to go into my go get into it? So this is something that I've always felt about this movie. I think I felt it the first time I saw it. I might have mentioned this to you, okay? But I'm going to be very radical. Oh, I don't know if and you after I after I watched it, I looked this up, and this is something that people are noticing as well. So okay, I, I think this is a remake of Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Okay. This movie, and it's going to blow your mind. You I, Actually, I thought when I started watching it this time, I was like, okay, am I insane? Hmm. And then I looked it up. There's like video essays about the, how similar the two movies are. And I don't know if Jennifer Kent has ever spoken about this, but mm-hmm. it has so many plot similarities, all these things. So, um, well, okay, Wes Craven's Nightmare is... Wes Craven's metafictional return to the Nightmare on the Street series. Mm-hmm. And it uh, revolves around Heather Langenkamp playing herself as she's dealing with her son, um, watching her movies and dealing with mental illness that could be mm-hmm. passed down from her family and so forth. So mm-hmm. these are the similarities that I noticed of the bat. In Wes Craven's The Nightmare, Heather Langenkamp loses her husband to a car accident. Mm-hmm. Same thing happens here. Okay, okay. Um, there's a scene where the kid climbs onto the top of the playground and 
Falls. Mm-hmm. Same scene happens in West Virginia. Do you remember what I'm talking about? You saw it in this right. movie, right? Right. Same scene happens in New Nightmare. Uh, there's mother struggling with depression and grief from her husband. Well, dying that's everything. That's day to day fucking life. Women have it hard. <laughs> Parents have it hard. Um, <laughs> there's a children's rhyme leading okay. the children, right? So there's the 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 bedtime story mm-hmm. in New Nightmare is the Hansel and Gretel story. Here is the Babadook story. Okay, the Hansel and Gretel element. I'm with you on this one. Okay, there's that scene where she's giving pills to the kid. The Kid doesn't take the pills. The right. exact same thing happens in your nightmare. Right. Like, I can go on and on. It's almost a shot by shot. Not a shot by shot, but a, a plot point by plot point remake. Huh. Wait, this is where it gets interesting. So the Babadook is Freddy Krueger oh. coming out from the storybook in West Green's Nightmare coming out from the movie, right? Um, okay. And once you take that lens into it, the movie becomes... So at the beginning, I was like, oh, this is so strange. It's so similar to... It's a new nightmare. I, I almost like it's so weird how there's all these similarities. Um, but then when you take the fact that West Coast New Nightmare is this kind of metafictional movie about an actress in Hollywood, and this is about a poor woman in Australia dealing with her little, like, small life, right? Dealing with her grief. She's not. In Hollywood, they're so. Well, different, I mean, like, to, to prove your theory correct, which I'm, I'm not completely on board with. I see similar theories, like I'm aligning with a few things, but it would prove why the Babadook became a gay icon. He's a scream exactly. queen because of Nightmare on Elm Street two, <laughs> the gayest horror movie ever made. <laughs> yes, where literally Freddy represents, and I think. The reason people connected these two things is because of this subconscious uh, Nightmare on Elm Street connection, um, including the production design of the house is exactly like the house from Nightmare on Elm Street 1 mm-hmm. with the basement situation and the door that goes into the basement. If you watch Nightmare on Elm Street 1, it's the exact same. Like the house looks almost the same. Mm-hmm. It, watch it again. It's creepy how exactly they are. So I think Jennifer Kent is deliberately using Nightmare on Elm Street as a, as a kind of reference to depict her, but her story is more pointedly connected to more a, a more pure or distilled representation of grief that Nightmare on Elm Street is. Nightmare on Elm Street has to do more with guilt from parents. Exactly. And all that that, that's why I was like a little, like, that's why I, I got off the trolley on that one because it's not about the sins of the fathers. This is about grief. This is, about a, grief. Exactly. this is a grieving movie. Whereas anything Nightmare, Nightmare on Elm Street, um, sorry, I just like slurred. That is that espresso martini that is not fucking around. Exactly. Um, <laughs> it will rule your life. It, it is phenomenal. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street is all about the sins of the fathers, about guilt. And mm-hmm. I feel like she doesn't have a ton of guilt in this. She is mourning somebody. This is the um, the only guilt she has is that she doesn't love her son the way that she should, that she feels that society thinks that she should. Also, a theme that I picked up in this movie is that society really wants you to grieve at their own terms. And grieving is such a personal process. And some people like to bury themselves in work. Some people like to like feel everything at once. Some people, you know, you never get over it. But it's like some people learn to live with it in in a prolonged amount of time versus some people are like, okay, you know what? It's buried in my head. I'm going to go to therapy about this. Like, I mean, I, I, I lost both of my parents within like a five 
year span and they were complicated relationships. So I had to learn how to grieve both of those things. I've had so many friends learn, uh, lose their parents, um, loved parents, uh, friends. I mean, you name it. It's so personal and so completely different. And I really greatly appreciated this movie this time around with my like 2020 eyes, um, how, how like people just people just want their friends back or they want their their way of life to go back to normal and that's why i thought this is like coronavirus we are all in a state of collective grieving mm-hmm. if you think about it like we don't know we, we our day-to-day is no longer it's not normal like we have to find a new routine we struggle with that we're a little bit more isolated from our loved ones um we're very uncertain about the future and whenever you lose a loved one, oh, like you just, you feel so many different emotions and you feel like kind of fucking crazy. And and I just thought that this was beautifully executed to that way. And I, I just feel like also you have this pressure of this young life of like, okay, well, I'm trying to process it the best I can. And this is my process and I'm okay. What the fuck is your process? And she's like really struggling. And that's why whenever this mom, whenever she goes to the, like, um, is it the birthday party? I In my mm-hmm. notes, I was like the brunch bitches. Like she is. Yes. It's the birthday <laughs> that was supposed to be a joint birthday party. Yeah. But it's the it's the cousin's or her niece's birthday party. Yeah, yeah I, I I well I was the housewife's birthday. The housewife's birthday. <laughs> so yeah, they go up there and the kid, you know, he's he's kind of learned. He never really had a dad, so he never knew what he lost. He just knows that something really bad happened and his mom is sad. And so we think the audience, like we think he's a little terror and he's up in the treehouse and this other little bratty bitch is yelling at him like, you don't have a father. And she's just being horrible. But they cut to, um, is it the sister of the husband? Is this her sister-in-law or is this a friend? No, this is her sister. It's her sister. Okay. Yes, So her sister. She's just like, it's been seven years. Get over it. I mean, I, I, you know, when it comes to grieving, a lot of people will be like, snap out of it. It's been a lot. And it's like, no, it's a very personal process. Some days are better than others. Some days you don't think about it. Other days it encompasses you. I mean, it's, it's a very personal thing. And I, and I think the movie, one of the points of the movie is like, the sister can't help you. You got to help yourself. You, you got to, that's one of the messages you gotta of the process. movie. You got to go through it yourself. Exactly. Um, so doesn't mean to fucking abuse your kid about it <laughs> or to, but, to or to sleep in in your room and you know paint all the walls gray doesn't mean any of that but you know do what you need to do to heal you gotta, de- you gotta deal with it yourself i think that's one of the messages of the movie but to be going on mm-hmm. um on this west screaming tsunami I, I i've seen this movie like three times and every time i see it i see more connections that is so interesting to me i i don't know no, man watch watch new nightmare and then watch this do a, but, do but a new, new nightmare is, double feature but new nightmare is, is meta this is not meta i know but it's strangely connected say okay same thing happens in New Nightmare. She's questioned as a mother by social workers. They want to take her kid away. Uh-huh. It's the same exact thing. She goes okay. to the hospital. Um, it's the same plot points are in there, and okay. it's all about her. Over and then at the end when she overcomes the Babadook, it's it's exactly what Nancy does. And everyone else, you were like, I don't believe in you. I don't believe in you. Right, and, and she's and she's dealing it. with a fictionalized character that's terrorizing her as a manifestation her, of her own. Big, yeah, and I, but, I can see that. So the the interesting part, which I think maybe is what you're battling with, is that even though it's literally like so similar, like it's almost like a remake. Hmm. 
but at the same time, they're completely different movies. Right. It's very odd. So she took this structure from Wes Craven's okay. New Nightmare. Because Lily, you, Lily, we should do a double feature at mm-hmm. the new Bev. Mm-hmm. And you will see this. Um, so this one was like, oh, my God, this is like exactly the same thing. Like all these scenes, reading to the, ch- the children's story. He's taking the pills. Mm-hmm. He has this little thing. He's mm-hmm. the, the kid. Everyone thinks that he's being abused by the mother. They want to take the kid away. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's marks on his neck. Okay, Every, you know what? Like, yes, I see that. It's I all do. there. Okay, I see that. Fine, you make but a compelling this, argument. <laughs> but at the same time, I also think that there's something about it that it's not. There's something about it that's different. Mm-hmm. So it's very strange. I think she took... Um, Something she, I think she really likes New Nightmare and, and, and projected something. Well, I saw whenever I watched this, I mean, it. obviously Exorcist, which is why I'm like, William Freakin mm-hmm. was like, oh, here I am. Like, thank you, doll. Like, you, you referenced me. But I saw that. I saw Amityville. And I also saw Carnival of Souls, which oh. you recommended to me recently. And I loved because it's all about a woman kind of freaking the fuck out, not realizing she's dead. And when you're so deeply depressed... I mean, you kind of feel like you're dead walking amongst the living. And I, I saw a lot of those little pastiches up so in there. going down that tangent, when I was mentioning the sexual repression element. That oh, my I God. See, like when he jumps is, into the bed and she's like, she's trying to get it on. She's just like masturbating. She's watching all these black and white films. And she's like masturbating. He's just like, mommy, and just crashes her party. <laughs> yep. <laughs> And if you notice, she has this light fixture above her bed that uh-huh. she looks at before she was trying to masturbate. Mm-hmm. And that's very much a reference to the movie Repulsion. Oh. Which is about, a, um, it's, Repulsion is a movie about, I think, about a woman who's isolated, sexually repressed, and goes insane. And this movie borrows a lot of visual stuff. Do you from think that Repulsion. was a nod from the DP? Because the DP is an amazing Polish cinematographer. I feel like that could have been Maybe, a nod. Maybe, but I no, but I think that light fixture is exactly the same. Okay, it's a, okay, it's, it's a reference, and when it cracks, it's the crack. Remember that scene in Yeah, yeah, it cracks? yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's Jennifer Kent's. She's like, these are my, vi- these are, you know, she's pulling. She's these are my visual, my my movie references that I'm pulling right. together. I'm pulling together sexual repression for repulsion. I want to be her friend. I think she's she's like fucking awesome. <laughs> I feel like she's um, a huge horror nerd like us, and I think she's amazing. She's yeah, she's definitely a horror nerd. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just brought up The Exorcist, and I here's the part where my mind was blown, and I feel like I should write a paper about this. So I was like, okay, I see this West Craven's New Nightmare thing, mm-hmm. and I see that she borrowed like whatever the plot points or the structure, but then she's making it so much more about grief and much deeper, much because mm-hmm. Heather. In in the nightmare, you don't see so much the depression. As even though all these things that are happening, like her husband died, mm-hmm. her kid is going crazy. There, you know, the nightmare is a meta film. It's about I'm an actress. I played this role, and it's haunting me, and I'm being stalked. I think she actually mentions the word stalking. Someone's stalking me. I thought, oh, the nightmare. Yeah. But here's the part that's brilliant. I also see a strong connection to The Exorcist, mm-hmm. where something's wrong with the child, and she takes the child to yes, the doctor. Yes, the whole hospital scene. Stuff. Yeah, because it's right after like the bratty child. You know, he pushes this little bitch out of the treehouse because she's being awful. 
you know, he's being terrorized, but he pushes her. And then, yeah, she's like, oh, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with the child. And yeah, that was a, a huge homage to The Exorcist. Like, okay, let's figure out what the hell's wrong with this kid. And that's when, for the first time, I thought, oh, is this a possession movie? Is he... Yes. Yeah. And I saw, I didn't notice the possession elements the first time. Do you see the Babadook or whatever it is mm-hmm. going into her and then she changes her personality? Mm-hmm. Like when she um, has those moments, like at the housewife's birthday <laughs> she, there's a moment where she like all of a sudden she gives zero fucks and she starts telling them how it is she switches she's very nice and then she switches her personality being very aggressive right and it's like a possession element right, right. um and again this could be metaphorical for her grief and for her lashing out but i saw this moment where the thing goes into her and she changes right she becomes abusive towards her child and so forth and mm-hmm. it's like is someone is inside of her. So this was very much exorcisty. Mm-hmm. Like she is Reagan being well, possessed uh, by Pasusu. And at the same point where we, the audience, we start noticing this, um, we start seeing for her that through her eyes, she starts having sensory reactions to the Babadook. So Samuel, little demon child, um, brings the Babadook pop-up book to her. And she's mm-hmm. like, hello, read this to me. I want to go to sleep. And she's like, oh, get this kid to fucking sleep. I'm exhausted. And also she's looking at this book like she's never seen this before. And for me, I'm like, you're the parent. You buy everything in this damn house. Like, y- you don't want this is? Okay, cool. The first time that I saw this. And mm-hmm. so she's having the sense of discovery, reading this pop-up book and it reminded me did you ever read the stinky cheese man when you were a kid do you remember this book (laughs) it had it had like the same tim burton-esque really gritty illustrations it wasn't a pop-up book but oh my god when i was a kid i could stare at it for hours i just i loved it so much so i had a kinship with sam at that point i'm like you just want to be lost like your dad sucks or your dad's gone your mom sucks and you know you just want to go to sleep and you're trying to make the best out of everything and he's doing his magician tricks you know immersing himself in imagination like i did for me i had i was an only child and i you know had imaginary friends and watched late night hbo (laughs) you know i mean i i really wanted to further my imagination um so anyways, she's reading him The Babadook, and it's really grim. And like you pointed out, um, she starts kind of seeing it. He's really afraid of it. It gives him nightmares. He makes this little mini crossbow, not a Bart Simpson mm-hmm. slingshot, like this very elegant <laughs> mini Again, crossbow. The, bo- the booby trap ending is an homage to Nightmare on Elm Street. True. Again. I see that. I see that. I'm, I'm with it. you. I'm it. coming around to that. I'm coming around. Fine but um so he's like having nightmares and then it starts seeping into her consciousness so after she takes him to the hospital we see the book after she's ripped it up she's like this is a terror i'm gonna burn this this book appears on her doorstep like fully pieced together and she's freaked the fuck out she starts seeing the babadook and shadows um starts hearing the knocks and then when she goes to the police station to say like oh i have a stalker she sees like the hat and the the suit jacket like we start seeing in different ways how it's getting into her psyche so the i feel hat yeah and the claws what yeah. does that remind you of i i know i'm not fighting you completely <laughs> on this i mean no because i have i'm going i'm gonna I, i'm building to a major revelation that i came up with. In Did you just video. pour yourself anyway, some more Skyfall over there? Yes, What's going on? I'm Skyfalling. All right. 
I have a rosé um, chaser after my espresso is done. Mm. So what I was, my big revelation, because I noticed, I mean, and again, I noticed all her references and I threw her references of New Nightmare and Exorcist and mm-hmm. Repulsion and all these things. And so Amityville, like, okay. come on. There's like some Amityville. Amityville. Oh, yes. Oh, I wrote Amityville. I actually wrote Amityville and then I also wrote David Lynch. I thought there was a lot of oh. Lost Highway things being left at your doorstep. Oh, intruders like the into your psyche and your house. Okay. That's cool. I didn't think um, about that. All yeah, right. I saw uh, Lynchian undertones. So she kind of blends all these things. But the part that really blew my mind because I was like, okay, William Friedkin, like when we. First thing we talked about mm-hmm. in this podcast today really loves this movie, mm-hmm. and I wonder is I I don't think he ever mentioned this directly, but there is a connection to the Exorcist like we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the crazy part: so I was like, wait a minute, there's a connection to the Exorcist and Wes Craven's New Nightmare. What's going on? And I for, you always forget that the Exorcist is a movie about an actress who goes to this town to shoot a movie, much like New Nightmare. They're both movies that are meta. <laughs> you make such a fucking compelling argument. Okay, I'm with you. I was like anti this at first, but you're right. Okay, all right. There is something here. I see this. Okay, so we have Exorcist through, and then I never into realized a new Nightmare and Nightmare on Elm Street because at first I, I think New Nightmare. I'm like meta, 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 meta. So okay. But it, but- all right. But New Nightmare is connected to The Exorcist, which I yes. never realized. And yeah. maybe Jennifer Kent is bringing these two things together. Huh. Um, where it's like actresses dealing with their children. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, they're like working actresses. They're famous. Well, and so I was like, I never made that connection. I was like, wow, there is a connection between New Nightmare and Exorcist. That then Jennifer Kent pulls into this movie. Mm-hmm. But she's of course, the main character in this movie is not an actress, right? Right. But then there's all this element about her watching TV and then the Babadook appears in the TV. Yeah, and she's very lost in these black and white romantic film classics mm-hmm. like Take Me Away, I Want to Be in That World, but this is my fucking life. I, I, I see that. but it, And also to, to bring that into this day and age, I also resonated from 2014 to now of... Um, of the conversations parents must be having with their kids about really hard oh, matters. Yes. And, and there's this one scene that I was just like, man, I don't know why I judged Samuel so hard when I first saw this. Like now he was chilling with the, the Parkinson's neighbor and, and the mom's saying like, what are you doing? Why are you hanging out with this old lady? And he says, oh, she has Parkinson's. She shakes like this. And there's this very cruel imitation in front of her. And she just laughs it off. And the mom is thinking, oh, my God, you're embarrassing me. That's so uncouth. And it just made me think of how brazen children are. He's not trying to be an asshole. He's just talking about things very openly, much like grief. Some people talk mm-hmm. very openly about how they feel all the time. Some people are like, we don't give a shit. Like, it's private and it's personal. And that could also be generational as well. Some people exactly. like hold it very close to their chest and they don't speak of that person or say their name out loud. I don't know. Everybody has their whole different process. But it just really thought, I, I really thought about today's parents talking to their kids so openly about things. Like clearly there's a communication issue between this mom and her child. And then go- going along that line, the idea of 
being open about your trauma. So that's the mm-hmm. other big course connected to grief. Right. So she's clearly being traumatized by the accident. They were all, I think, well, he was in the womb. <laughs> but, you know, they were technically all in this accident, even though if he was in this accident before he was born, mm-hmm. he was about to be born. Mm-hmm. And so there's this trauma that connects the two of them. And so dealing is not just grief is dealing with the trauma of having been in the accident. And this is something that I notice in this viewing mm-hmm. every time they're in the car, this is a probably the scariest scenes in this movie are these cars. I know they are so spooky. And, and usually I feel like dream sequences are kind of a cop out, but I mean, to go to your nightmare theory, like I, I'm with you on this. I, they're very terrifying. Anything can happen. It's this very dreamlike you're at peace, but you can be on the edge of your seat, like something fucked up can happen at any second in these dream sequences. Yeah, and it's and again, yes. Yeah, so there's, of course, the dream, but these the the scene in the car when they're driving. I think when you see the Babadook, it's one of the scariest scenes in the movies for me. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because it's connected to the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. They're in a car. It's dangerous. They had a car crash. They have a trauma about the car mm-hmm. crash. Well, something course, they can't the control, like like today. <laughs> Today's yes. day and age where we are not in control. I mean, not, not in control. And then she almost remember she like crashes the car and then like runs away from the crash site. Yes. From that guy oh. that comes out at her. Yeah. So I, those scenes, again, lack of control, which is something that happens in dreams as well. Mm-hmm. Um, were I, really well, terrifying well, to me. Oh, I wanted to I add on why. to that super quick before I forget about this. I thought that was so interesting whenever like we see the husband. Well, we only see him for that one shot, right? Or two. We only see him once or twice in this movie. So he appears, I guess, at the beginning in the no. sequence, the accident sequence? No, no he's not shown in that. I think we just get... The vibe. We know that there was someone there that died. Right. Uh, maybe we he hear his voice. to her. Yeah. Well, towards the end of the movie, right? Yeah, he's we like, see him. Like, he says something to her. And then and then we see his face, like, slice off. Oh, yes. Oh, the slice off Which moment. is an, yes. an oppressive visual effect. And then it's just so creepy. But also when it comes to grieving for myself and for a lot of people that I've talked to, it's kind of rare when you see the people that you are grieving in dreams. I feel like it's such a rare occurrence because you're actively and subconsciously, your mind is working on so many different planes to process this trauma that you don't really dream about them. Like you'll dream about work. You'll dream about a job that you had when you were 21 or, you know, going to the fucking store. Like I wake up and tell Jack all the time, I'm like, I had the most boring dream. I was like in line at Rite Aid. Like what the hell was that? I mean, (laughs) you know, just really weird dreams. But um, I've talked to a few people that have lost their siblings or friends or parents and, and myself included. I feel like you see this maybe once a blue moon. So when you do see them in your dream, you're so shell shocked. You were so just like, oh, my God, you're, you're stunned. You think, mm-hmm. are you trying to communicate me? What does this like communicate to me? What, what does this mean? I mean, it, it's, it's a, a, an event when this person shows up and they display him later in the movie, I feel. And I just felt like it was a very special moment. It was a good storytelling well, technique. I, I kind of read it as at the end of the day, the entire movie is about her, her dealing with a trauma that she delayed dealing with. Mm-hmm. Right. Just because not because she delayed it, but because she, she well, no, everybody works right? on their own time, yeah, you know, everyone works in their own process. So, um, I think 
you know, there's there's a couple of elements that reflect this. One of them is the this, those the fact that she's not sleeping and there's those transitions where she goes to bed and it's like it seamlessly goes into the morning. Mm-hmm. It's just like this time lapse thing. Mm-hmm. And you get and I think it works really well. You get this sense like, fuck, I can't sleep when the kid is waking me I know, up. And he's and exhausting 24 seven. And that's why she's drugging him. I'm just like, oh, like, let me get a minute. <laughs> I want to sleep in. Like there's that one moment where she drugs him and she wakes up at eleven o'clock. They make sure to show that that clock. I'm like, oh, that's my ideal time to yes. wake up. That is such a wake good time. Up wake up at eleven. Wake Your up day late. will be set. It's awesome. Um, but also, I know it, what you're saying about the sleep paralysis thing. I think Amazon Prime has a video essay too about the Babadook and sleep paralysis. And I I want to kind of write that off. I'm just like, it's not about sleep deprivation. You know, I think it's oh, about the, in this movie. Yeah. The, no, I think it's. I think it goes between the two, right? Sometimes she doesn't sleep. Sometimes she sleeps. Right. I just think that she has right? no schedule. Like she has no no sense of normalcy. That's what I responded to. And no sense of time. I think it's yeah. Everything, everything blends, blends into each other. Yes, which a lot of us are feeling. So yeah, which maybe is, that's my oh, own I mean, projection, but that's what oh, I'm feeling. Oh, I know. <laughs> That is, I don't know what the fuck. I've been here for six months. <laughs> and I don't know what day it is anymore. What Nobody day is does. It? Nobody know. Day, knows. Day, night, whatever. It all blends yeah, it into all blends. each other. Um, um, oh, and the other thing, just another connection to Nightmare on I love Street. that we took a drink um, at the same time. We're like, we're going to have this moment of silence to gulp something of, down. <laughs> yes. Um, is this idea of the basement that comes to everything happens in the basement. They go to the basement. That's where they trap the, yeah. And they yes. trap her. Um, well, it's buried and, deep below like her feelings. I don't know. And this is also a production design element in the nightmare on street movie where everything is in the basement. They go down to the basement. That's where Freddie. Right. And that's the boiler. Freddy. I'm with you on the this. I, okay, I wanted to fight it really fucking hard in the beginning, but okay, I see it. I understand it. But before we get there, I do want to address that for the, the Babadook book that's been ripped up and everything. A lot of people didn't get it whenever I went to the first screening. And I think that we overheard people at the second one. They didn't get that. She wrote the book. And she even says plainly to the bitches at brunch, she's just like, oh, I write, I write things, I write children's books, I write articles. Like, they tell you very plain this day. And there were some people that were confused that she didn't write the book. And I'm like, no, she. this is a manifestation of her grief, and she's scaring the child, and the child has, you know adopted this scary personality of hers as the Babadook. I mean, I feel like we got that when we saw this, but there were um, a few people I remember being like, oh, does she write that? Oh, she's a really good artist and yada, yada. But then watching this this time around, it is so apparent between the black and white films and she dresses a lot in shades of gray. The entire production design is a Tim Burton charcoal house and grotesque looking. I mean, it's pretty apparent. Like you are in this person's... Sick, which, by the way, they do say that shades of gray, if that's your favorite color, it represents mental illness. And you know that I love every now and then to throw some gray up on some walls. So I don't know what that fucking means. <laughs> the Jennifer's gray. Jennifer's you know, gray. Jennifer's gray. I thought of Jennifer's gray when I was watching it. I, was like, I oh, mean, gray is such a nice some... color on a wall. It's so nice. If it's light, if there's a blue tone under it. I'm into it. <laughs> I like it. But anyways, it's yeah. very apparent to me. And then, yeah. 
And, and that's interesting because it's true. It connects the idea that she drew and I mean, it, I mean, when you see when the book continues to be written, more more pages appear, and you mm -hmm. see her, or you see the, in the book the the dog gets killed, then it happens in the movie. Yeah, and then she's gonna kill the kid. So it's it's a premonition. And it reflects what she's hiding from. Or like any any good writer does, they they do an outline. <laughs> These were her note cards to her... to execute. <laughs> but also the the color palette of the book reflects the color palette of the house, exactly. which is where everything plays. Everything out. is yeah. charcoal, man. Everything. It's charcoal. So that's and that explains one of the questions that I had. I was like, the colors, the wall colors of the house are so bleak. Mm -hmm. This entire color palette is so. Kind of interesting, but I love this idea that it's essentially reflecting her own mind, her own creativity, what she wrote in the book. Right. And then the only color in the movie, I think, is the book cover, the red. Yeah. I don't think Which there's is a any startling, other color in that movie. And it could be an angry or passionate color. I mean, I remember your kitchen yes. <laughs> on Fountain. Everybody, Garamo. Garamo. Was it? It was your kitchen, not your bathroom, right? Or was it both? Well, the the bathroom was red with uh -huh. a shining poster in it. Yes. No, your kitchen was <laughs> great. Kitchen it was the was bathroom no, that the was like was orange. Yes, the the bathroom was shining themed with all this blood red, and you, it was like you could even see the streaks of the paint. I like it was a very yep. clean and wonderful bathroom, but it terrified me every time I went in there. I'm like, people died in here. I mean, granted, it was like a 1940s. West Hollywood apartment. So people probably did, you know. <laughs> but I just I remember like thinking red for walls. I'm like, oh, this is a lot. It's exciting, but it's a lot. And then when you open, when you come out of the shower, you have that, you know, Jack Nicholson. I know. Here's Johnny. You face just see his looking face at looking at you <laughs> naked. So you're like, am I the lady in, in the room? <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> what was this reversal role play? <laughs> Um, I, I want to get to, there's like this whole steady thing where she's pretty much abusing her child. She mm -hmm. puts the glass in the soup and he's like, oh no, the Duke did it. He's processing it as like his mother could never hurt him. And that just broke my heart this time around. Um, we get to this big scene um, where he's like Kevin McAllistering it and has his mini crossbow and he sets up traps around the house and she's chasing him with a butcher knife and all of this. But the thing that I totally forgot about is her teeth. Her teeth are aching <gasps> throughout the, the movie. So, yes. And then she rips them out of her jaw, which to me was a very horrific moment. And you and I know people that have gone a little crazy and blamed it on their teeth. They say that there's a nerve like through the jaw and I don't know, it kind of affects your mental clarity. I mean, there's articles written on this. There's people that claim this. But um, I do know that if a sign of great anxiety is whenever you start grinding your teeth. If you are overstressed at work or stressed about life, you will clench your jaw, grind your teeth. It, it becomes a, you know subconscious activity but then it's the kid is the one who's grinding his teeth at the beginning which is interesting so i know we, we swap yeah we're like he's yeah. i mean the doctor clearly says he's like he has anxiety and we're like yep we got it like he's he has a really hard life 
And then with the mom, she makes one motion to her jaw. And then in that one scene, she just rips them out of her face. And I'm sure a lot of people have those dreams about teeth falling out about of their... Teeth, yeah. yeah. And it's almost it's like she cannot distinguish between her dreams and her reality, of course. Yes. So she's kind of living in between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, also, random thing that I noted, the kid looks like Robbie from Poltergeist. Oh. Did you notice that? Oh. I didn't because I was I was so just transfixed by his face and his acting. I just thought this little boy was amazing. And I just remember hating him so much when I saw this the first time around. I thought, oh, my God, it's because my ovaries are probably dead inside. Like, I just, nope, <laughs> nope, nope, not siding with this kid. And this time around, I could do nothing but root for him. So, no, I didn't recognize that, but I could see that. Totally see that. I don't know why he really. Maybe it's because we saw Poltergeist recently for this podcast. Yeah. I was like, oh, he kind of looks like Robbie. I can see that for sure. Um, And the other thing. Oh, yeah. So the the other element that was interesting was this the two personalities that keep showing up in in the main character and the Mm -hmm. lead actress, Essie. she keeps switching between the two and it could be read as a possession thing. Um, it could be read at schizophrenia, which is a or thing bipolar that, or bipolar. Cause that, so that voice, I, that voice she uses when she switches, right? Yes, becomes, it's monstrous. It's just monstrous and other level. And I'm just like, is this how she really, um, expressed her anger and fear or, is that the perspective of the child? Like, she was so scary. She was yelling at me all the time. But then again, she's chasing him with a butcher knife at the end. Yeah. So she goes full Crawford on him. <laughs> no more wire hangers. <laughs> um. I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at the dirt. <laughs> um, but it, but what's interesting is that, the, so she has these moments where she, of outbursts. And I'm thinking again of the housewives at the dinner where she's like, where she yells at the house, she's like, Mm-hmm. turns and even though it's part of her abusive behavior towards the kid it's also her way of asserting herself well trying to take control the, trying to, to yeah. yeah to feel like i'm sick of feeling this way or i'm just either going to go balls to the wall crazy or change my life which happens at the end so I think, but that builds up to the twist of the movie, which is when she overcomes her grief mm-hmm. by putting, by basically taking control over it, feeding yes. it and keeping it at bay. Yes. So she understands. And I think this is probably the most kind of wise thing that the movie says. You can I, never get rid of grief, but you can control it and keep it in the basement. I'm clapping. <laughs> I don't want to clap too close to the mic because I'm sure that is really annoying for listeners. I, I could not express how much I loved that ending. I I think that's true for grief. I feel like that is true for any kind of trauma that one goes through of it never goes away. You just learn to live with it. You learn mm-hmm. to adjust. Um, and we seek so much closure. Closure is very important in our society and it really shouldn't. Like, yeah, films have happy endings or sometimes cliffhangers. And and I really liked that with this whole power of Christ compels you kind of moment they had in the basement where he has mm-hmm. some crazy Boy Scout moves and ties her up. 
and and she's just like screaming get out Babadook get out and she pukes up all the blackness and whatever um this one moment really just broke my heart when he's just like I love you even though the Babadook won't let you love me it, it just it broke me it broke me I mean having I had a mentally ill parent like well, kind of had two mentally ill parents that is I just I resonated with that so hard and this little kid is just like cavalier about it yep this is how it is. Okay. So at the end, it just makes perfect sense that this child says, how is it today? He checks in on her and anybody mm-hmm. that's grieving or anybody that has mental illness. It's so, it's such a little thing to do, but it's so, so important just to say, Hey, how are you? Or how are you doing today? Or how's this? You can be specific. You can be vague, whatever. But I just love, he's like, how is it? And she answers him as a peer and says, oh, it's, it's better today. And she goes and she feeds him the worms and mm-hmm. under the basement, and he's chained up. So he will never go away. He will always be there. He's always there. But she knows how to f- talk to him. and de- She stands up to the grief yes. and is able to live with it. Yes. And that's what I was saying, that her moments where she goes from being meek to being aggressive it's almost like she can't find a balance in relation to this grief. And then by the end, she finds the balance and she's able, she finds her voice towards the grief, mm-hmm. right? And that's the scene, the basement scene at the end, um, which is fascinating because I think it's very truthful to what grief really is, I think. And mm-hmm. this is where I think Jennifer Kent's intent in this movie. <gasps> Jennifer Kent, be my friend. <laughs> she's amazing. I love her. Because she's depicting grief for what it is. and But the part that's interesting about the ending is like, okay, finally she's able to celebrate the birthday of the kid on the day, right? Yeah, it's that's when thing. it's like really, I mean, it's hinted at throughout the movie, but we don't quite get it, or at least I didn't quite get it towards the end of, you know, this death date is symbiotic with, the birth date and the death date triggers people. And and for mm-hmm. me and a few mm-hmm. people that I know, it's never the actual date. It's the weeks leading up to the day. Like your 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 body is preparing you for survival. There is preparing you for grief or for trauma. So it's kind of subconsciously lingering in your mind of what's going to happen. And the actual day is not so bad. But it's what's leading up to it. And that's whenever, you know, the little cute Samuel kid's going, oh, I've never really celebrated my birthday before. You're like, oh, my God, you're seven. It's because this date is just so triggering for this woman. And, oh, my God. And where some people could look at it as a distraction of I'm going to find a way to celebrate this and make this happy and have a moment. Like she went the other way, which people do because grief is so fucking personal. Yeah, and I think it's 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 interesting because maybe we should talk a little bit about her performance. Oh, she's amazing. Um, which which I oh, go on. Yes, sorry. No, 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 I was just saying like because I was so conscious of acting, given the connections to The Exorcist. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, and she's Unite terrifying, and she's like this gorgeous, gorgeous, beautiful actress. I could watch her face all day, and she just turns in a very interesting performance. Well, I thought she. One of the interesting things that happens. So thinking of acting, so I had acting in mind because of mm-hmm. you know the other two films being about actresses being mothers, and how their professions as actresses relates to their neglect 
trauma and so forth. They're a single mother in some respects and the mm-hmm. ex she's divorced and the you never see the father. You he's like a absent father. Oh, that's very and true. It, it's about the plight of the single mom and the stresses. Yeah, okay. So whether it's through being a widow or through being divorced, there are single mothers dealing with a parent and dealing with a career. And the so judgment movie, that is all on you. And in this movie, she's a nurse. But for some reason, I, I paid a lot of attention to her acting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I noticed that her acting is, um, what's the word? It's like, she becomes different people at different points in the movie. Right, and yeah. she almost looks different right. at different points in the movie. Right. To the point, and maybe this is a symptom of why I took all these notes, where I was like, I was like, oh my God, okay, so Essie reminds me, what was the first one? I was like, let me see. She looks, oh, oh the actress, uh, Catherine Deneuve from Repulsion. Oh, she's Catherine Deneuve from Repulsion. Mm-hmm. I felt that way um, too, yeah. And then she is Kirsten Dunst. I don't know why. At some point, I saw Kirsten Dunst. Don't ask me why. Well, you know what? Um, I have a theory about this. I, I think it's because you emulate. You don't realize it. But I think that your facial muscles, it's, it's like a, an evolution thing. I think it was a Darwinism effect that whenever you're showing uh, fear, mm-hmm. uh, like the same that dogs show their teeth just to warn you. I, I feel that it is a technique in acting that could be purposeful, but I do think it's a little subconscious of you mimic uh, a facial expression that you know to convey fear, which and the others, <laughs> mm-hmm. I noticed so much that Nicole Kidman, there were times that she cont- she contorted her beautiful face to look like Tom Cruise. I'm like, you know what this person... <gasps> I'm serious, this man. This is amazing. I'm and serious. I rewatch. Oh, there were so many times where I said, oh my God, she looks just like him. And he, you know, he's like the most famous movie star on the planet, or you're, you're always aware of his but movies. But they were... This was towards this the end of This is when they were getting divorced. Yes. <gasps> and, and she mimicked his facial expressions to an extent that I... And you know me, I love her. I've seen everything. I've never seen such a facial performance from her like that. Mm-hmm. She mimicked his his eyes, the... Ma- like, it's really hard to describe. So I think what you're saying with this, I really feel like Essie... I mean, who knows? Essie, if you're listening, look, let us know, girl, because you were fantastic. But I, I feel like she emulated those great... Um, introspective horror performances. I thought she was so good. And she, so here's a couple of others. So I had Kristen Dunst. I was like, oh man, she's Kristen Dunst. And then I was like, is it just me or does she kind of looks like Cameron Diaz all of a sudden? And I was like, where, where is Cameron? I know Cameron Diaz is retired. We're just acting. making this about Vanilla Sky now, aren't we? We don't want to make it about know. that. Is that what's happening? I just, I just remember... Interesting. Okay. Okay. So I had a Cameron Diaz moment and I start, went off on my mind because I know that Cameron Diaz, you know, she retired from acting. She yeah. kind of left Hollywood. She got over it. Living her fabulous life. Yeah. And she recently appeared in an interview saying, yeah, I left. I was over it. I, I just wanted to do these things instead. And so, again, for some reason, because I'm making this connection to mm-hmm. New Nightmare and Exorcist about mother actresses, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my God, is this Cameron Diaz, is this what she's doing? 
Was she retired from acting? She lives in Australia. <laughs> like it was just like the strange because oh, I had funny because of the connections. I had to maybe Essie. Um, I forget what her character's name is. You no, know, this is what we do. We're just like it's Essie Davis, Essie. and <laughs> but Essie was an actress in a past life or something. The backstory of the mm. character that we don't see. Well, she cradles the, a violin at one point. And I thought that her backstory was she was yes. a musician. Like this a is musician. who she used to be. She used to be an artistic, sensitive person. And then her life drastically changed. And she's just trying the best she can to adapt to it. So then the, my last comparison to an actress was when in the final scene, the exorcist basement. Yeah situation was like oh my god and then i saw laura linney and i was like <gasps> it's laura linney now i, I don't know why it was laura really strange Lenny. wow <laughs> i had i saw her i love I, this I montage think... of blonde actresses that you've had this is great yes. <laughs> and i was like oh it's laura linney and i know that laura linney tends to play a lot of mother roles that have a dark side complicated relationships yeah to there's depth so. so interesting. And and also, to build on that, I greatly appreciate that they close the scene um, after she's, like, feeding the Babadook worms in the basement and the kid is trying to do magic tricks. And he's still exhausting, but somehow tolerable because Mommy has her shit in gear for that day, at least, you know? But she's also gardening. She's doing that zen-like activity uh, of taking care of plants, yes. which is a huge 2020 activity. And I'm, I'm thankful. Like here at the fabulous Tiki Room, Jack takes care of these plants. I would murder them. I am like, do I water yep. them once every three days? I don't know. Like I get really impatient. I'm very antsy. And he, he and, and like Mike next door, like they seek the importance of feeding and caring for these creatures. And so at the end of the movie, I thought, okay, she's going to take care of her little boy. She's taking care of this plant, mm, you know? Yeah. And I, I felt that ease at the end. But um, yeah, also, but counterpoint, I think that children's birthday parties should be celebrated thoughtfully. <laughs> like I, I'm, I'm sad that this is his first party in seven years. But I mean, with the California fires going and all, it was because of a gender reveal party. Oh. And, and whenever I read that on the news, I almost threw my computer out onto Fairfax Avenue. I just fucking lost my mind. So it was just like, okay, do do kids need parties every year? Maybe I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, those those bitchy housewives at the other birthday party they uh, threw that gender reveal they did. party that they, burned the world they absolutely did anyways um, do you have final notes I kind of want to talk about the Duke being a gay icon you're a gay man oh, how do yes, you feel about that let's go to the gay thing the gay theme so um, I love that I ha- this is a thing but I, I don't quite understand it but I love that it's happening so I had a student in, I, I taught this movie in a class last year and they wrote um how do people respond paper. to it in this day and age i mean we talked about all these themes of grief all this stuff but my mm-hmm. student really wanted to make a paper about the the gay meme thing and okay wh- what is it what why is this happening and they made a very interesting final project exploring the idea of um what is it called it's the cryptoids or something like they're like figures 
they're like not, not animals, but like like something like the Babadook. Where okay. It's, like, it's a f- creature that okay. doesn't really exist. Some fantastical, in some fantastical creature specimen or whatever. Okay. That communities that are disenfranchised or marginalized connect with because that creature is also marginalized in the narrative of the film. So I, you think know, I that- did have a lot of gay friends coming up that really reacted strongly and bonded with Furbies. <laughs> yes. This cut it's the same <laughs> like that. Some- I, I'll throw that into that category. <laughs> so I think connects to the idea that um, when you're growing up gay, you tend to connect with villains because they are, well, yeah, kind of ostracized. They're, yes, they're the society. outcast, and you're just like, we don't really know his story. Okay, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, Boo Radley. Boo Radley didn't do shit to anybody. He was just like an introvert. He was staying inside of his house, and people spread rumors about him, and they're like, oh, stay away from Boo Radley. Like he killed people. He rapes children. It's like, no, he just likes to stay inside and read. It's fine. Leave him alone. Um, which, thinking of that. There's something to be said to the fact that in this movie, the Babadook has really no fault. He's just a projection of the mother's grief, right. the mother's repression, the mother's abuse. And then so they use the mother and the son use this figure to kind of communicate how they're relating to each other through this traumatic process right. that it is to overcome grief. Yeah, the Babadook united them. I can see that. But the Babadook himself doesn't really it's almost like pinhead and hellraiser <laughs> where he's not really a bad like i was i've watched interviews and so i was watching interviews with clive barker he's not really a villain hmm. he's a facilitator of what people want to do with themselves so he's right. bringing this pleasure and pain thing and he's in this decked out S&M outfit. And he really <laughs> like he represents... has great style. I mean, come on, both great. Hellraiser and the Babadook. I mean, and Edward Scissorhands. Like, I don't think Edward was that into Winona Ryder, honestly. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Same, same caricature. And they all have, you know, Freddy Krueger hands. I know, they're waving at you. So I think it's, it's that idea that the Babadook is a figure that people are projecting ideas to, but at, at the end of the day, they're just, you know, we don't know, you don't know who they really are. Like in a way in this movie, they, the, the movie doesn't really go into the backstory of the Babadook. Right. For example, as they do in Nightmare on Elm Street, this is a difference, right? right. You know, oh, he was a and child he, And he's villainized this versus this. I mean, I read um, tweets in relation to whenever the meme came out and Netflix made their little goof. Um, and then he was celebrated at Pride. Like, I, I just love that the gay community just welcomed him. They're just like, yes, like, this is fantastic. You, the, you're just trying to live your best life in suburban Australia, and people are trying to make you scary, but you didn't do shit. Like, you have great style, and you don't say anything. Like, what the hell's going on? And, like, one tweet that I read was just like, oh, this person, like, the Babadook made a book about himself. It's all about drama, and it's just so artfully done. Yes, he's gay, you know? <laughs> and I remember seeing it at Pride and WeHo, like, people were dressed up as the Babadook. And I, and I read a quote from Jennifer Kent, and she just so welcomed to this. She was just like, oh, this little bastard will never die. He wants to be relevant. Like, he's he's just always going to be there. But he doesn't do anybody any harm, so why not? <laughs> 
I mean, I, I just really love that this became this metaphor for really dark material became something so happy and optimistic yeah, and, and a symbol of hope basic. and acceptance. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it's also connected to the fact that when you're growing up gay, you, you, you have an affinity towards horror movies because you're dealing with your dark thoughts, your lack of acceptance in society. So you, you know, you, you have a connection to your dark side that is very different mm -hmm. from other people. Mm -hmm. And again, maybe it connects to the themes of grief in the movie and con confronting your darkness hmm. becomes a metaphor for confronting who you really are. Okay. Right. All right. So, and it's not a direct, because yes, at the end of the day, and I think I discussed this with my student when, when they were writing this paper, um, the movie, there's nothing gay in the movie per se. It's not like, you know, Essie is a lesbian or the kid is going to grow up to be gay. Mm -hmm. None of this is in the movie at all. There's nothing to indicate that. Mm -hmm. um, but for some reason, externally, viewers connect to the Babadook as a person who's being left out of the narrative. I think it's the fact that we don't get anything about the Babadook other than what he represents to them hmm. at, at different points in the story. He doesn't get Ooh. to have his own say. Ooh, I like that. So, I like that take on it a lot. Well, so oh, what are you oh, going to say? No. I'm just going to wrap this shit up is what I was going to do. What are you going to say? Well, I just thought of the top hat. The, the hat of the Babadook uh -huh. and then how the kid wants to be a magician. I, that came into my mind. Mm -hmm. And so is the Babadook, I know he's a projection for both of them. Right. But I never thought about him being a projection for the kid because hmm. in a way him, you know, he dresses up with the magician's cape. Right. And, and the gloves. And he has like the and top the hat. And it's very clear the Babadook like, has his top the hat. The Babadook could be a representation of himself. Hmm in some new way. So maybe you could take that into the kid will grow up to be gay. I don't know. <laughs> you gay communist. Always. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I mean, Samuel felt saying. everything. I was, God, I just, I can't get over how when I first saw this movie, I'm just like, he is a terror. He's exhausting. Give this kid up for adoption to only a few years later. And I am, like I said, I'm not maternal in any sense of the word, but I'm just like, I'm with this kid. This is a story about abuse and neglect. And I'm very sensitive to those issues. And especially with this time that we're in, my empathy factor is just like, like skyrocketing. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm so sensitive. But yeah, I I was like rooting for Samuel. I'm just like, good for you for not resenting and hating your mother. You're really trying to understand her illness. And just because your process was so different than hers, you don't judge her for it. And you're six. Like, come on. And he, yeah, and he's, it's, I, the ending is definitely very surprising. I love that ending. It's, Which a, good it's a good ending. ending. It's a positive. It's a happy ending. So, you know, <laughs> back in the day, just to wrap this up, back in the day, um, little Aussie boys would stay at the, the hostel down the street on Fairfax. And I would mm -hmm. love the Aussie accent. And I would just say, hey, where are you from? And just, you know what my pickup line was? And like, I'm Jennifer. And for some reason, it, last names were important to them. You know, you never go to a bar and you tell everybody 
everybody your first and last name like you're filling out a job application but for some reason with some international people they're like what's your last name and they would save you into their phone i'm like okay interesting (laughs) and and so my pickup line would always be my last name is your shittiest beer like foster (laughs) (laughs) and they would just laugh and they'd be like that's like jennifer budweiser and i'm like yep (laughs) And it worked. It worked. That was my really sad. <laughs> I love that. That was my play it. back in the day as a 20 something. Anyway, so I'm going to wrap it up on that note. <laughs> Thanks for discussing the Babadook with us. Say goodnight, G. Or say good day. Yes. Good day. Good day. Good day to you all. <laughs> Bye. Phase your demons, overcome <laughs> your grief, and live with it. And embrace your gay icons, exactly. such, as, such as Dr. G. Celebrate the gay Babadook. <laughs>